Okay, now you can go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So who's our guest today? Franita Tolson. At USC. Newly at USC. Yes. Previously at Florida State, I guess. And USC, now I, I graduated undergrad from South Carolina. So USC in this case. Is Southern California. Yeah. Do you know for a while South Carolina tried to, they had this like um, uh, brand that said the USC? Uh, like, the, oh, like the Ohio State University. Yes, but but there was this implication that they were the real USC. Uh, I think that may have engendered just a little bit of like laughter and chuckles. <laughs> <laughs> in Southern California. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, and much the West Coast, I would assume. Mm. Uh, so anyway, we, yeah, we've got, what a great conversation. We've already had it. Yes. We know it's good. The listeners don't. This is one of those uh, time warp inversion things right. happening. But it is great, and they can take that to the bank. We did not get to record. We thought maybe we would record a mailbag show this week that we could like send out over. That did not happen. It did, it did not happen. So there's no show next week. There's there's no show next week. Don't so next next Sunday, or, you know, or whenever you expect to get this thing, you're you're right. just not gonna. It's you know, it's gonna be like going. There's no there's gonna be no presents under the tree. People are still in turkey coma next Sunday, so I don't think it's I don't think it's I'm the not, worst I, thing. I, in I the don't eat turkey. Hmm? I don't eat turkey. Okay, whatever. Um, Food coma. Hmm. Some, you'll be in some sort of tempeh coma. <laughs> some sort of protein substitute, something, something, something. Tofu. But we've gotten a lot of great feedback. Tofurky. So despite the fact that we're not doing a mailbag right now, that just means it's going to keep piling up. We're going to have... <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, we're going to have this blowout episode of mail... Uh, a mailbag blowout episode. Cool. And oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. We just got a great bit of feedback that I have not shared with you yet because it came to me. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, well, let's, boy. Um, really let's go on with the show. Okay. Okay. Uh, there was something else I wanted to say, though. Save it for next time. No. No, I think... Oh, I, I know what it is. It's actually germane. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. The germane addendum to that is there used to be a contact button on our website, oralargument.org. Did you remove that contact I, button? I removed it because it was just filling up with spam. Yeah, it was a source of sort of inflow of junk. Yeah. And 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 a lot of it got routed to my junk folder, but then I started to worry that, that authentic messages to that contact form would go into my junk folder, which oh. happened with one bit of feedback from listener Alan mm. a while back. So that's yeah. back in the stream. Hopefully yeah, we'll address that in the yeah, next mailbag. Yeah, you don't want to set up a thing that is 90% bad and then you miss yeah, it. Yeah, then you miss it. Good, right? and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So... Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. On to the and show. On to Fernita Tolson. This is a good good conversation, isn't it? Amazing. You can tell I don't want to I feel like I, I'm feeling a lot of good energy right now. And it's I don't so want to I don't want to hit the stop button. I understand that, but you're gonna hit stop and then you're gonna tell me this other thing and then but our listeners can enjoy the show. Okay. Fernita. Hey. This is Christian. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. And this is Joe Miller. Hi, Joe. So this has been a long time coming. Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to be honest, one of the reasons why it has been such a long time coming is because I'm very nervous. <laughs> oh, oh, don't be See, nervous. I, I, you know, if anybody should be nervous here, it's Joe and me. <laughs> uh, it should be it's Joe and I, I guess. Mm. See, I'm, I'm already messing up. Right. See, Fernita, I'm making mistakes already. <laughs> so, so, Christian, I think the reason... I that I would be nervous is we're talking to someone who has amazing depth of expertise in things that are very complex. And so, you know, you, I, ha you had me at depth of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so I'm just hoping we can, in the conversation, um, make sure that, that our, our listeners are, are able to really get all of the benefit of Frenet's expertise. And in a way, you and I well, are maybe a I barrier mean, to that. All right, but, now, now you've, you've set up too high a bar already because you're not <laughs> going to get the benefit of all of her expertise. But we're going to talk about one particular project of yours, Frenet, I think. And we'll try to, you know, this, like we said on the, on the last episode, we kind of orbit around ideas and, and sometimes we really we really get there. And, and you've got some, you know, some really great ideas. And it sounds like the book project is kind of, well, began by orbiting around this idea of Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Um, yes. and, and I guess, I don't know if that grew out of a general interest in kind of reconstruction and the 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 kind of uh, the, the the constitutional efforts at reconstruction early on that ultimately you know failed you know um, and uh, at least until maybe we're starting to recover some of that um, but this is also an interest of mine I've been just I don't know it feels more acute these days I'm looking at Joe kind of looking off in the distance I'm wondering if I'm making any <laughs> sense I, I usually look at look at Joe to see like am am I going too far out there but uh, um, but but it just feels like there was a moment right in the in mm-hmm. the uh, after the Civil War uh, when you had you know a lot of black representation in legislatures and and uh, and there was a, a, a the civil there was a Civil Rights Act right, uh, right. regulating yes. private discrimination. Um, there was a moment where everything could have been different, and I just don't f- feel like we've ever reckoned with the tragedy that was the reversal of of, of Reconstruction. And 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 in a way, when I started reading about uh, your, when I read your paper about the two Section Two, Section Two of the Fourteenth Amendment, and Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, it 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 pointed, you know, it it renewed that kind of frustration, right? That that here was a tool all along uh, to to attack the you know, uh, um, the depravity that ultimately emerged with the, you know, the rise of the KKK, the destruction of, the destruction of Reconstruction. Um, All right. So that's a lot kind of, I'm just, (laughs) emotionally, this is like what's going through my head when I'm reading this, because I know all of these stories. And I, and I want our listeners too, to, to know a little bit about whether you're in law or not, how much people associate like the freedoms of being an American, whatever that, you know, in general with, with this amendment to the constitution and with the 15th and 13th as well. Like, you know, a lot of the freedoms that people assume are American freedoms are really Civil War freedoms, right? Um, yes. So, I, I, all right, that's a lot out there. But how did, how did you come to be interested in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment? And we'll talk about what it is. We don't have to say what it is just yet. We can do that later. But I'm just curious, you know, what led you oh, to it? yeah, sure. So um, I noticed in my teaching that we glide over a lot of things. Um, so, for example, in um, when I teach election law, I'll say things like, yeah, so the right to vote is a right, but it's not really a right. It's kind of a right, even though it's, <laughs> it's not explicitly defined as such in the U.S. Constitution. But we treat it as a right because the court recognized it as such. Um, and then I'll get a question about the level of scrutiny. Um, and I'll say, well, usually it's strict scrutiny for rights, but uh, it's not really strict scrutiny anymore for the right to vote. You know, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. and then I realized I'm like, we don't really have a clear conception of what it means to talk about the right to vote. Right. Um, and so this is what sort of prompted me to, to look back and, and try to figure out what's going on. Um, and, and one of the things I realized also is that the right to vote has certainly evolved since the founding, right? So um, initially it was attached to property owners, like you had to have property to exercise it. But really in the 1830s, you see um, uh, this very broad conception of universal manhood su- suffrage, at least for white men. Um, and in part, it was a response to the rise of political parties. 
And then by the time we get to um, the Civil War and Reconstruction, you really do have this conception of the right to vote as a, a true political right. But it still doesn't attach to this notion of natural rights, right? So this idea that everybody should be able to exercise it is something that the government can't really take away. Um, it's treated as really, really important. But even in the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, you really don't see a conception of the right to vote um, that, that I think really reflects as important importance. And part of this reason is hmm. because of federalism, yeah. right? There's just a, a sense that the states should be the ones to uh, define what we mean by the right to vote. And really, federalism is driving a lot of this. And, and the right not, to vote, the right to vote even for federal office holders, even for federal office holders. It's not even um, that they don't. It's not that they don't consider the right to vote to be important. It's not that they don't consider the right to vote to be a right. Um, it's more so the idea of of which entity should have the responsibility for for defining what voting rights are in this country. Have you looked back and and tried to trace, or has anybody? I, I haven't read in this area, but whether mm-hmm. whether this like because it does seem a curious omission from the constitution right the everyone shall have a right to vote right or the right to vote shall not be abridged except by mm-hmm. blah 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 it doesn't the constitution doesn't do that like it does for speech or or even for no. bear, even for bearing arms uh, even with all of its provisos it, it, does this reflect or did it reflect the uneasiness uh, of the framers with democracy like, you know, we assume that we live in a democracy, but of course, you know, famously in the Federalist Papers and and, uh, and the very design of the Constitution, there is an uneasiness with democracy and there are various kinds of fixes. You know, there's a – we have a republic, right? But there's a democratic aspect right. to our republic, but that, that but there are a lot of provisos in there that, uh, that, that kind of restrain democracy. Is there – the right to vote would be paramount in a in a democracy, right? But maybe in a right. republic, not. I mean, do you know? Is there any of that in like early thinking or Civil War thinking? Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 founders were uncomfortable with democracy, but I think that it's important to understand that they were also dealing with criticism that the federal government would swallow the states, mm-hmm. right? And so right. by leaving political rights in the hands of the states is one way to sort of make this distinction between no, we need very strong state governments, um, but we also need a more centralized. A federal government, and, and one of the compromises was that the state legislature, the the state legislatures, would sort of def, you know decide who could vote in federal elections, and so and that's why in Article One, Section Two, you have this link between um, the electors for federal offers, uh, uh, the electors for federal off- offices are uh, their qualifications are tied to the people who can vote for the most numerous branch of the state government, mm-hmm. because that that was the founders' way of giving the states uh, some control over the composition of the federal government. And so, yes, there is sort of an unease with democracy uh, broadly defined. And we see that in how our government, the federal government is structured. But um, by giving the states some say in the composition of the federal government, it was also sort of an olive branch <laughs> that we're not trying to take you over and, and to show that we're going to give you some say in how we're, we're composed. In addition to in, the ability to choose senators, in, right? I mean, in addition to the ability to, to choose senators. Right. Um, but one of the interesting things about Article 1, Section 2 is that um, the, the founders also thought that the right to vote would continue to exist. And I think that's really important for understanding why there is no explicit right to vote in the federal constitution. I don't think that there was ever any question that somebody would be voting for something. Um, right, so right, right, right. I, and of course, it's, it's not even, it, it's funny that today that we're arguing about um, the right to vote and who should be able to exercise it. Um, and, and, and I think that if the founders could have anticipated the way things evolved, that they, they probably would have 
um, put a right to vote in the federal constitution. But interestingly enough, they were concerned that if they did, if they if they tried to outline the qualifications for federal electors, then they would disenfranchise people in some states, you know, people who could arguably vote under state law, because at the time, every state had their own voter qualifications. And so that's why they they did not. Ah, So if some so if they included uh, qualifications uh, in the Constitution, they might have thought, well, it, it could be. It could be to the benefit of some state citizens because they would get enfranchised in a way that they're not now. But for other states, they might it might be worse. Exactly. If we don't hit it, it, unless we pick the state that is the most enfranchising as our standard, some people could get fenced out. And and that and we don't want to do that. So just let the states individually uh, define. And as long as. We say whatever definition you think is good enough for you by the, the, the most numerous branch in your own government, we'll use that for us, too. Right. And the, the interesting thing is that the, the founders themselves weren't in complete agreement about um, who should be able to exercise the right to vote. Hmm. For example, Benjamin Franklin um, did not think that it should be limited to property holders, whereas John Adams was very clear that he thought that it should. Um, so there was not even agreement among the founders about who should be able to to exercise the right to vote. And so that also avoided that argument because there would have had to, there would have had to been some coherence amongst um, uh, that group in terms of, you know, if they, if they attempted to set voter qualifications for federal electors within the constitution itself. Hmm. Now, but while we're talking about these kind of basic matters, before we get to the civil war amendments themselves, I, mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking about something as I was reading your paper, you know, I was thinking like, what, what would have happened had there been no civil war amendments uh, but we nonetheless were uh, catapulted into modernity, right? And so mm-hmm. um, a, lo- a lot of the old compromises would have become, well, perhaps would have become unacceptable. So assume maybe there's a 13th Amendment, but maybe no mm-hmm. 14th Amendment. Um, mm-hmm. So there was still like a strong, you know, the the, um, uh, the kind of the radical, radical Republicans didn't win on, in that respect. So assume that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, do you think maybe the Republican Guarantee Clause would have been used to incorporate aspects of the Bill of Rights? Um, against the states. It occurred to me, I I never really thought about it. I mean, I thought about the guarantee clause a lot, but as I was reading your paper, right, so the idea of republicanism was clear that, you know, that is kind of the founding impulse, like that, that compromise between the rule, you know, like the platonic fear of rule, rule by the mob and, and despotism on the other end, right? So, um, and and there's that clause in there, which is, you know, the states, you've got to have a, you've got to have a republican form of government. And, and that is like the words due process. You can jam a lot of substantive <laughs> uh, rights into that term, Republican form of government. So I'm wondering, like, whether you I, I don't know. It's interesting, you know, to think about how it might have unfolded. And a lot depends on jurisprudential attitudes toward interpretation. Um, but it does seem like that could have been a vehicle. But I don't know if you've ever thought about it or anybody else has. I mean, I know the guarantee clause has had stuff written on it, but I don't know if you know anything about it. That is a great question. So one of the things that initially comes to mind is the fact that um, so you had the 1850 decision uh, of the Supreme Court, which basically said that the guarantee clause was non-justiciable. And I, and I wonder the extent to which that would limit the ability of the clause to sort of pick up some of the slack if we didn't have a 14th and 15th Amendment. So, of course, Congress can come in and, and exercise power under the clause in trying to guarantee that all of the southern states had had uh, representative government. And to some extent, they did that, right? So the Military Reconstruction Act is the uh, provision that 
um, basically put the southern states under military jurisdiction, and then it required them to have state constitutional conventions where they adopted constitutions that um, pledged to endorse the 14th Amendment. And also um, these uh, constitutional conventions were the delegates were elected based on universal um, male suffrage. So you had black delegates, you had white delegates. It really was a um, it was unprecedented in our history. Now, the 14th and 15th Amendments, to some extent, were designed to cement some of those changes. Um, and so and it didn't work for almost a century. It didn't work. Right. So right, right. Um, it worked for maybe uh, into the I mean, African-Americans were voting into the 1890s. But um, outside of that, you, you had a period of um, what, five or six decades where nothing was happening. So I imagine if there was no 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, maybe it would have taken a little bit longer to get where we are now. But I do believe that we would have gotten there because many of the changes in the 1960s were in response to sort of grassroots civil rights activism. Right. Um, and it wasn't really because we needed additional constitutional amendments. They were there and they were not being used. Um, and so maybe it would have taken a little bit longer. But arguably, um, the Civil Rights Act of um, 1965 was based in, in large part on the commerce power. Um the Voting Rights Act, some of those provisions could have been based on the elections clause, right? So th there is constitutional authority there to justify many of the steps taken in the 1960s in order to extend the right to vote to African-Americans. It's not as if um, we didn't actually live through a period where the 14th and 15th Amendments were not being enforced. Yeah. And, and you know, famously, after the Civil War, you get the slaughterhouse cases, which right. read out of existence the most natural way to incorporate the the um, uh, most of the Bill of Rights against the states and eventually they, the court latches on to other language. And so, you know, it just seems like the court mm -hmm. is going to use the tools it has around at the time um, to do what the times demand or kind of what politics smeared out over time demand. And, and yeah. so I'm wondering if that if the due process, you know, obviously privileges and immunities wasn't wasn't there for this due process right. was. But even if due process wasn't, maybe maybe Republican guarantee would have been the way to do it. And and it's interesting you mentioned you know the, the eighteen is it eighteen fifty is when they when they said it was non justiciable eighteen fifty yeah. yeah and and I don't remember when Barron against Baltimore was decided you know the one case saying hey the Bill of Rights doesn't apply against the states but there was a whole you know there was yeah th there were a whole group of people who just objected to the idea that the federal government had no role in rights protection and that's mm -hmm. and it, that kind of consensus is what's overturned by the Civil War and once that consensus is overturned it does seem like well maybe uh, that's a time when you could you know, reach out and find other language, you know, even if that language weren't there. And this is a detour. I don't yeah. need to, to get too far from yours. Although it does raise the question, though, of um, of what changed. Um, and that's yeah. not, you know, we talk in broad generalities. And I think that's uh, also what brought me to this this book about Section 2. Uh, so when you talk about Slaughterhouse, uh, one, of the, one of the things that we teach is that Slaughterhouse is a rejection of the idea that the federal government has a broad role to play and protecting individual rights, right? right? That the slaughterhouse cases, the civil rights cases, you know, it's sort of this proposition about um, our system of federalism still emerging intact after the Civil War. And and you might, and some people even say, like, this is, this is the Supreme Court murdering Reconstruction in the crib. Right. This is the, the Supreme Court murdering Reconstruction. Um, and so, and, you know, I teach that to my students. And then in the, the 
the uh, course of doing my research, I started asking more pointed questions of myself. What changed? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like what? Something changed. You know, so the Supreme Court is telling us in the Slaughterhouse case is that um, nothing really changed. And we know that's not true. And so part of the things, part of the the, the goals and objective, objectives that I hope to achieve in writing this book is to, to create a narrative about what changed specifically when we talk about the right to vote. Right. Is it a question of whether or not um, the federal government is able to intervene if the states are not doing their job? Right. Or is it a, a question of the federal government enlarging its own power to, to regulate the right to vote, even if they are falling short of um, explicitly creating a, an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution? Right. Maybe they didn't want to do that, but they still wanted to do something. And I guess this book, part of the goal is to figure out what that something is. Well, why don't we, why don't you tell us, so section one is the section of the 14th Amendment most people are familiar with. Uh, Law students and lawyers will know about section five, the enforcement provision, Mm -hmm. but section two is something that, you know, I had to go, (laughs) I had to go to the Constitution (laughs) and look at it again. Uh, You you helpfully excerpted it in in your paper, but do you, maybe, uh, do you want to tell us, like, just remind everybody what's in section one and then, and then tell us what this mysterious section two has in it? Okay. Okay. So uh, most of the focus is always on section one, right? So section one is the equal protection clause, which guarantees to everyone equal protection of the laws, the due process of clause, uh, due process clause, which, um, <laughs> which is interesting, right? Cause it's also, it's procedural and it's substantive, right? So we look to the due process clause as um, guaranteeing people certain procedural protections, but it's also a source of substantive rights, right? So we trace um, the uh, abortion rights to the due, uh, substantive due process, the right of privacy, um, certain uh, rights that we have in our criminal justice system uh, uh, emerge from substantive due process, right? You have the right to um, to get certain trial transcripts on appeal. You have, you know, various criminal justice rights, like substantive due process really has become a, uh, a source uh, of rights in a way that is interesting and, and also stems from reconstruction and, of course, fairly limited views of the privileges and immunities clause. This section, whether it's privileges and immunities or due process, and the court has said it's due process, this mm-hmm. is the only constitutional provision um, that the that the court can use to strike down state laws, which say ban political parties, as the southern states did during the Civil War, or ban political speech, or do all the you know do all, do all of the things that we associate with despotism. And it's the Bill of Rights; it's incorporation, isn't right? Yeah, that's right. That's I'm just trying to, say, I'm trying to say that in a more flowery flowery right. way. I'm but. like, it's, it's so much right, the, so much weight that we put on Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, and that's why. And you know, when you think about it cohesively, it's almost like mystifying. Like the Equal Protection Clause is also a source of substantive rights. In fact, that is where the right to vote comes from. The Supreme Court in 1966 said that the Equal Protection Clause guarantees a right to vote in state elections, um, that um, states, once they extend the right to vote, they have to extend it to everyone on equal terms. So even the Equal Protection Clause is a source of substantive rights. And and the, the weight that we put on it uh, really does explain why there are probably thousands of books written about Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and if you think about it, uh, Section two really has taken a backseat to all of this. And, and, you know, before I started writing this book, I would have said rightfully. Right. It's never been enforced. So Section two is the provision of the 14th Amendment that allows Congress to reduce a state's delegation in the House if the state abridges or denies the right to vote. It is not limited to abridgments based on race or color. Um, it, it just says that if, you know, except for the commission of a, a crime, that is the only exception. And so one of the reasons I became interested in it is because 
it is the only provision of the 14th Amendment that actually mentions voting. And it seems interesting to me that the right to vote also traces to Section 1, even though Section 1 says nothing about the right to vote. It says nothing about voting at all. And in fact, we have a provision that talks about voting, yet the Supreme Court does not look to that provision in sort of defining and understanding the scope of the right to vote. Can I just read it in a paraphrased way? So everybody, so it, it says, because um, I got, I, I pulled it up in front of me. Otherwise, I would, <laughs> I'd have no idea how to, how to characterize <laughs> yeah. it because I just, you know, it's something I'm not familiar enough with. But the section two, it says, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers. They're modifying states, I think, right? So counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for and then uh, federal officers and judicial officers of a state or the members, well, really any any political officers, is denied to any male, any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States or in any way abridged except for rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. And so if you did, I, I take from this that if you have laws in your state which would deny the right to vote, say, to a third of the male inhabitants over the age of 21, and uh, assuming that none of those third are criminals or, or rebels, mm-hmm. uh, then, you're gonna, then, then this provision uh, allows um, Congress to reduce the representation in the House by a third. Let me let me be clear. So reduced by a third, meaning um, so the the basis of of representation. So the population that is used in order to calculate how many seats that right, right, right. entitled to will right. be reduced by a third. Yeah, yeah. it's not exactly proportional because you get one automatically and then you right. get. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask about a zany hypothetical because I have questions about Section two, which which I'm sure I had read at some point in the past. But w- I mean, one thing that's sort of a revelation about all this is you read it and you're like, wow, it, <laughs> there really is this provision that really says this. This is kind of amazing, this uh, reduction in the uh, the size of your population and the way that would reflect in your representation in Congress, which seems right. quite drastic uh, as a remedy. <laughs> and, 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 it, and that's how you get someone's attention to not engage in certain misbehavior is impose mm-hmm. a very drastic remedy. Um, so, so here's my zany hypothetical, just to make sure I understand the mechanics of Section 2. If a state were to pass a statute, and there's no reason why it would, but if a state were to pass a statute that said, you know, it, Every third ballot cast uh, by uh, males over 21, because I'm trying to fit myself within the framework Mm -hmm. of the clause, right? Every Mm -hmm. third ballot uh, cast by a male over 21 will will simply be destroyed, not counted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We would say, oh, okay, so we know what to do. We lop a third off your population figure for purposes of calculating representation in Congress, right? It's just mechanical at that point, right? Right. So, but, so, so oh, you know, of course, no one would do that. No state would pass such a statute. It seems bizarre. Um, uh, well, it's 2017, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Here, but here, here's a here's a, a not zany question. I don't think it's zany. Um, it, the, the clause says, I mean, it's worded in an interesting way, right? It says... Um, if the vote, if the voting right is is denied or abridged, something shall happen. 
Right. Right. It uses the word shall. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and I'm sort of thinking in parallel with the, with the way that you can bring an equal protection claim, right? You can go to federal court. You can say this person uh, under, you know, obviously it's a, some, there's some state action requirement, right? But this, this thing is a violation of the equal protection clause. That is a claim that stands on its own. I was thinking feet. that as I was reading it, which doesn't appear to depend on Congress enforcing it, right? Right. And so I'm wondering, it, do you think it would be – do you think there's a legitimate argument to be made that people should be able to bring Section 2 claims? Um, yeah, sure. And let me explain why. Because shall is, is mandatory. It's not may, which is more permissive. So I do think that one could argue that um, it is judicially enforceable and that people should be able to bring these claims. Courts have rejected that, though. Oh, they so, have. Okay. Yeah, so people have attempted to bring claims to to cases to enforce Section Two, but courts have not been receptive. Um, and I think part of in so you know I, I'm biased, right? Like I think <laughs> Section Two is, you know, it should be enforced as a tool. But um, I think courts are very cautious in part because it's never been enforced. So you do run into the the problem of standards. And in fact, if you look at the historical record, Congress attempted to enforce it in 1872. And they collected all of this data on all the state laws that um, abridged or denied the right to vote. Now, every state law, even um, restrictions that we would consider to be OK today. For example, if a state has a registration requirement, Congress collected data on that. Right. Because it had the effect of disenfranchising some people. Um, and, and, you know, at the end, Congress simply passed a, a statute restating the terms of Section two. And they did not attempt to enforce it because they didn't know how. They were so confused. And this is 1872. This is only a few years after this revision was actually adopted. Um, And, and, you know, and I think that's part of the reason why courts are somewhat hesitant to attempt to enforce it because they're not entirely sure how to do it. So so do they dismiss it on political question grounds, saying that there's not a manageable standard, just like they do, you know, which is the issue in Gill against Whitford. Is it the same sort of thing? Yes, it is. And and interestingly enough, Congress uh, tried again. Right. So in 1899 and 1901, Congress tried again and it, and it didn't go anywhere. And so you really do run into an issue of manageable standards in a way that um, the closest parallel probably would be the partisan gerrymandering context. Well, why isn't there a standard? I don't I don't I don't. I mean, it says don't deny or abridge mm-hmm. uh, the right to vote. And, you know, when when we. In the First Amendment context, where it says, you know, don't pass a law abridging the, the freedom of speech, we don't all throw up our hands and say, oh, bridge, I don't know, oh, gosh, don't, can't quite figure that out. Uh, <laughs> we, we, talk, we try to figure out what it might mean to abridge. Part of the problem is the penalty itself. So in the, the First Amendment context, the, the scope of remedies are a bit more manageable than the, the scope of remedies under Section 2. So even if we know what a bridge or deny is. And in fact, the court has said that certain restrictions on a right to vote, you know, a bridge or deny the right to vote. That's Section 2 of the, the Voting Rights Act, a lot of those cases, and also 14th and 15th Amendment. It's not, it's not like we don't have a cachet of cases that we can draw on in order to figure out what a bridge or deny means. Um, I think it's the penalty itself. So essentially, I think courts are worried about telling Congress, hey, you have to take away two seats from Texas. Right. I think that that's the the discomfort uh, that courts have, as opposed to trying to figure out when a state has actually abridged or denied the right to vote. And it triggers the penalty. That's very curious because the 14th Amendment, you know, gives that power. It provides that remedy. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, the even if you 
you know, and I, I do think there's a place for the political question doctrine where, mm-hmm. you know, it's, things are committed to other branches. They should work it out. The court, if it gets involved, becomes less like a court and it gets to be difficult to apply. Like, I get all of that. But when the Constitution speaks in mandatory terms, like this thing shall happen, you know, there's not a lot of judgment. Uh, it seems like that would not be difficult for the court to to manage. However, like I would have thought that the problem is at the abridgment uh, part, like deciding, like, has this thing happened, which has this very serious consequence? And unless that thing happening is is clearly defined, that involves the court. Like, you know, it's it's the remedy is so great that the court will be open to charges of, of you know, um, uh, po- political uh, partisanship unless the, you know, un- unless it's really, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, the words are not coming. Uh, un- unless it's like bulletproof, right? That, that right. There, was an, there was an abridgment or denial, which is why I think it's kind of curious that when you have an actual poll tax or literacy test, you can count the number of people who showed up at the polls and are turned away. Like that, right. that seems like a number that you could have. And there's there's nothing in here saying unless they were turned away for reasons of education. None of that. Right. None mm-hmm. of that. So um, so it seems to me that there was a time when this when, when this uh, uh, um, section would have been easy to administer for the courts. And it seems like its application would have been mandatory now with the voter ID and other sorts of abridgments, which. I, I think most of us recognize our abridgments of the right. It's, it's harder. Mm-hmm. Like, at least there's an argument that, like, no one is actually being turned away who shows up and wants to vote. Unless you can say, well, maybe, I don't know, would you say people who show up at the polls and lack an idea and are turned away? But how do you, I don't know. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. How do people think about abridgment in this context? Polit- political scientists are able to sort of estimate how many, you know, the effect of a voter ID law on the population based on who has the requisite ID, right? So we're able to get some sense of of the effect of a voter ID law. Like, I think if I'm remembering correctly in Frank, Ver- Frank versus Walker, which was the Wisconsin voter ID case, I think the estimate was that it would disenfranchise something like 2% of voters or something like that. You know, like it was, it was a, it was a lot. Right. And so the, the the empirical evidence is there that can give us some sense of whether or not a restriction abridges the right to vote. Um, so I don't know if that's the issue, but um, I, I, I actually I agree with all of that. I don't you know, I'm, I'm sort of putting the arguments out there, but I don't see why this isn't being enforced, particularly after uh, the reapportionment revolution of the 1960s. Right. Because why is that any different? You have a, a court basically telling the state they have to redraw all of their districts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why is this any different? Um, and, 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 and interestingly enough, after Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sim and such, you do see a, a renewed interest in Section 2 and, and uh, people sort of writing about it and wondering if it's if the reapportionment cases now mean that it's judicially enforceable, because in reality, it's, it's no different. Um, but I do want to point out a practical um, barrier to it being enforced. Um, if let's say Congress comes in and says, OK, we're going to start enforcing Section two based on this proportionality principle you see in the text. I think there's a question of, of the effect that it would actually have. Um, most states probably wouldn't lose enough population in order to lose a seat. Um, when I use Texas as my example, it's because Texas is, is probably one of the few states, if not the only state that has enough population and has passed enough restrictive laws that they will actually lose a seat under Section 2's penalty of reduced representation. 
Um, and so that's a that's another consideration. Uh, the text in, embodies a proportionality principle that probably wouldn't affect most states in ways that we think appropriate. Now, one of the things I argue in the book is that Section two still has a lot to tell us about Section five and Congress's power to enforce Section five. Right. So Cong- as I mentioned, Section two is the only provision that actually mentions the right to vote. It has this very extreme penalty of reduced representation. And Section 5 gives Congress the authority to enforce all of the provisions of the 14th Amendment, including Section 2. To me, it's not outside the realm of plausibility that Congress could adopt legislation that imposes penalties on states that abridge the right to vote that do not perfectly mirror Section 2's penalty of reduced representation. I don't think Congress is limited to that. I think that they can draw on that provision as a source of authority to enforce a broader swath of penalties than that that necessarily exists under the section. I'm, I'm sorry, under the 15th Amendment, right. which only talks about abridgment based on um, race or color, right? So the 14th Amendment, 14-2 in particular, by not without this limitation of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, um, actually gives Congress substantially more authority under Section 5 of the, of the 14th Amendment to protect the right to vote. Um, and and I don't want I don't want to say substantially more. I'll say it's just different in kind. Right. And this was a yeah, and this was a big deal, right? Because right. before the Civil War, Article One gives Congress limited powers, right? And and it and the fact that it was a a, a, a legislature of limited powers mm-hmm. dis, uh, distinguished it from the states, which had the police power, the kind of the residual power to pass all laws, which are in uh, the interest of the public self, uh, health, safety, welfare, or morals, and. And, and so one of the big changes here, right, is is in in the Civil War amendments in creating a bigger role for the federal government. It's it's not just about enlarging the ability of the federal courts to adjudicate matters. It's giving affirmative power to Congress to accomplish certain goals, namely rights protection, right? Which is right. It, it, you mentioned earlier in the in the show that you know that a lot of the um, civil rights acts in the in the 60s were justified under the commerce power, right? And there's mm-hmm. a complicated, very complicated story about that. But it's clear that one of the main missions of the 14th Amendment, right, was to empower Congress to accomplish a legal reconstruction, right, a, a, a reconstruction right. Of, of rights. Such that the Commerce Clause is really a second best, in, in, in my view anyway. The, they're simply... Uh, we've simply been misreading by reading too narrowly the Fifth Amendment's empowerment of Congress to take the steps that it should be able to take. Right. I mean, I think that yes. that sort of thing is a, would basically represents a bit of a frolic and detour, um, which we found a way to solve the problem that we'd cut off a useful tool by restoring it with the Commerce Clause. Perhaps in the it. same way that the, that the Due Process Clause was latched onto because of the slaughterhouse cases and the... Neutering the privileges of immunity. Exactly. Clause. Right. 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 Um, so, so if the Section 2, if Section 2 of the 14th Amendment... Um, should should inform our understanding of Congress's ability pursuant to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to protect rights, including voting rights, then I guess your your argument is uh, the 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 remedy, um, the the um, the sanction imposed on states uh, in Section 2 is sort of a ceiling. Right. As long as you don't do anything worse than that, Congress you can do stuff. So all of the things we see Congress do in the Voting Rights Act, things like pre-clearance, which was struck down in Shelby County and, and shouldn't have been, but, but you, you, you'd give us a new way to think about that well, because you'd say, least, ah, that's, that's below the ceiling of Section 2. 
Just just to clarify, but, in Shelby County, what was struck down was the the original formula. Like the if you think the, because, because states can still be bailed in for preclearance, right? Uh, fair enough. Right, but, right, right. And, the, and the main preclearance mechanism though was was the section they struck down. They struck down the section saying, hey, it's these states. Well, at least here here are some criteria. The criteria actually didn't make a lot of sense in modern times, but like mm-hmm. it was a sensible starting point given bail in and bail out, right? Uh, right. But but by preclearance, just to clarify again, because not everybody's you know this is very complicated. I'm in a, I'm in a mangle it. My mangling will give uh, Fernita a chance to fix it. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but the idea is that um, because of historic problems with voting uh, and the difficulty of like of, of fixing discriminatory um, election practices after the election has already happened, like, you know, it takes a long time to litigate. Uh, right. The Voting Rights Act set out a procedure by which certain states which have had historic problems need to go to the Justice Department when they change their uh, voting procedures and before say, hey, is this changing before changing? And, and they have to get a sign off on that, which is called preclearance. And the mechanism was, hey, these states are problematic. And it had to do with, uh, I forget exactly what all the criteria were. So it was uh, nine states in the Deep South, plus parts of other states that were uh, brought in later. And they made the initial determination based off of those states that had uh, voter turnout of less than 50 percent um, in certain presidential elections preceding the adoption of the, the law in uh, 1965. Yeah, so it goes back to to what was happening in '65, and but in a way, that's root that is rooted in Section Two of the Fourteenth Amendment. You're you're looking for the you know an effect of the way they were running their election laws, and the way it pans out is for for these identified groups, they're showing up at a much lower rate, and yeah. that's a sign that they're abridging the right to vote, isn't it? I mean, thank you, Joe. I have <laughs> you know, I'm like Section Two is the first. It's a textual example of selective preclearance, right? Because one of the reasons it's set up that way with this penalty of reduced representation um, and abridging and denying the right to vote is because they are focusing on the South. They are not focusing on the North. The North did not have large amounts of a a large African-American population. No North would lose seats under this uh, under Section two, even though almost every northern state discriminated on the basis of race when it came to voting. Mm. It is a textual example of selective preclearance, and which is why, like Shelby County, is just I'm going to just be quiet <laughs> because literally, you know, it just it gets my blood boiling because the decision effectively acts like the 14th and 15th Amendments never occurred. Right. He's talking about a voting regime that existed prior to the Civil War. That is not how we think about congressional power anymore. And not to mention that that even if you think that the that its kind of initial definition is is flawed, like even if you thought that, the, what you would want to do is strengthen the bail in and bail out procedure. You know, because exactly. the bail in the bail out procedure is okay, we know that we had problems in 1965, but look how well we've been doing. We haven't had mm-hmm. a lot of Section Two suits against us. We are we've been we've been drawing good maps. And, exactly. and, and then the law says, OK, you're no longer a covered jurisdiction. You've been bailed out. On the other hand, uh, maybe maybe some northern state, maybe maybe some maybe some county in New Hampshire, because it's not just states. It can be counties. Right. It can be uh, right. smaller jurisdictions. Be uh, right. So but I want I want to go back because the the um, if I understand uh, Frenita's argument is a is a lesser includes uh, excuse me, a greater includes the lesser. So right. so section two of the but 14, a good version of that. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Okay, because right? right. because I'm because I'm very disposed to agree, and that makes me a this makes you nervous. nervous. Okay, um, that I'm <laughs> greater um, that greater includes the lesser is the is the genesis of lots of bad arguments, right? Yes, it is. Right. So 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 the um so so if we look at uh, and again just to to just to repeat the argument. So 
So you say Congress has a lot of authority under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to protect the right to vote by passing various protective statutes. And the scope of that power is informed by, among other things, uh, Section 2, including the remedy that it provides, which is a very steep remedy against the states that misbehave. Um, so if, so greater includes lesser. Um, it, it's the model there, and maybe this is why so many of these arguments go awry, right, is the, the argument there is you can line things up like on a line, and you can say everything to the, to the left of this point must be okay, right? Because yeah. they're all on this line and I've gone through them to get to here. So they must all either be okay or if, if this one isn't okay, everything to the other side of it is also not okay, right? But can you really line things up on a line that way? Well, the, the example that I give my students in property class uh, when we read a case which involves – where the court basically uses a uh, greater includes the lesser argument is – and they accept it because it sounds good when you make it is, uh, well, of course, then the, the greater power to kind of close down your shop includes the lesser power to close it down only to Latinos. And then the, the room goes quiet, right? It's like, right, wait, everyone's wait, like wait, oh, my wait, gosh, that, I didn't agree to that. It, did it I? turns yeah. out that the power to pick and choose is a much greater power than than the discrete than the, kind of the binary power to close or not. Right. And so it's that, exactly what you say, Joe, it's not it, there's not a line right there is a. It, it, you know, there is at least a plane, right? right. And probably no, more. I don't. I don't. I actually don't think about it as a line. Um, I just. I was trying to figure out a way because if you look at the language of Section Five, and many people have argued this, it's very open ended. Um, and so I was trying to understand the greater includes the lesser was my way of trying to explain a relationship between sections two and five together. And really, um, the argument is much broader than those provisions. I think about it as, and maybe this is kind of a line, um, it's more of a spectrum, right? So uh, when, when Congress is acting pursuant to um, the, the task of regulating federal elections, right? So the elections clause uh, says that states choose the time, place, and manner of elections, but of course, Congress has the power to make or alter such regulations at will, right? They don't have to provide a reason. There's no discriminatory intent requirement. There's None of that. And so when we think about Congress sort of, you know, regulating the time, place and manner of elections, of federal elections, one might think of congressional power at its height. Right. This is when Congress con congressional power is unquestioned. The court, and the court has said this. But when we, we start thinking about and, and really this is what got the court's ire up with respect to the preclearance formula. When we think about Congress's power to regulate um, state elections. Right. That um, and, you know, where they're, they're, they're basically saying to states, you have to preclear all election regulations, even those regulations that only apply to state elections. Then we're less certain about congressional power. Right. And so um, when we think about the greater includes the lesser and, and, and trying to formulate what will fall within the scope of greater includes the lesser, I think you also have to think about it in light of that spectrum. So if Congress is passing a regulation that only regulates um state elections, for example, when its power is at its lowest, then maybe we won't be comfortable with that. Maybe that um, should not fall within the scope of congressional powers under the ceiling of Section 2, right? But if Congress is acting to uh, try to regulate federal elections where its power is at the, its height, then, yeah, maybe we're more comfortable with saying that the greater includes the, less, the lesser. Because one of the things about the greater includes the lesser is that it's very subjective, right? When we Some, some states might actually prefer um, to pay the penalty of reduced representation, then be subject to preclearance, right? Hmm. That that is a very distinct possibility. 
And so I think when we talk about greater inclusive lesser, we also have to think about it as as one factor that's influenced by um, the overall constitutional structure with respect to how power over elections is delegated to both Congress and the states respectively. Well, I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen what you've done in the book project, but in the paper, I like the way you, it seems to me you point out section two as marking out, you know, something that should inform our imagination about what Congress can do, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so to the extent that, to, to the extent that um, that the regulation you have in mind is uh, differs from the Section Two um, um, uh, kind of trigger and remedy in magnitude, right? That the difference between mm-hmm. those two is is mainly in magnitude along the dimensions of the kinds of things that we care about. Then the greater does include the lesser, right? Whereas mm-hmm. the, the argument about like, well, I can close my, the greater power to close my shop includes the lesser power to discriminate against Latinos, right? That the the the, the, the so called lesser power differs from that so called greater power. Exactly. In, in, in ways that we actually care about, right? They, they don't just differ in <laughs> magnitude, right? It, it, the greater power to close my shop entirely includes probably the lesser power to kind of open up and close and then open again, right? I mean, d- because yeah. because there is a, um, a, a, on the same day, because those two are kind of, our, our concerns about opening and closing are like, you know, the, they differ only in magnitude, right? Along that dimension. Whereas right. the, the power to discriminate against people is, unre- is, is th- our concern about that is kind of unrelated to the closing time issue. Right. And mm-hmm. here, I think you're pointing out like Section two has in mind exactly the sorts of things that you would like to see Congress kind of take up. Right. Mm-hmm. A- and I don't know, it, it seems like a data point that, uh, in that in the in the realm of our kind of constitutional imagination. And all, all you're saying is that we can we can journey toward that point. Like if you imagine like we're at the origin and we're traveling out on a ray toward this point marked out in Section two, then that's the greater power. And we can go anywhere along that dimension, along that ray. I don't know if that makes sense. But I think it, it does make sense. But I think one of the things that I'm responding to is this notion that I'm advocating for, you know, unencumbered congressional power under Section 5. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's to me, that's one of the uh, attractive things about this notion of greater includes the lesser, because I do think it's respectful of the fact that states do retain some authority over elections. And, you know, they still have uh, significant control over voter qualifications, uh, provided that they are acting in a non-discriminatory manner. Right. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I felt like it was important for me to be clear about um, what it is I'm saying that Congress can do under Section five, uh, uh, because I'll, already it's controversial because I'm you know, I'm, I recognize that when Congress adopted Section two, they assumed that the penalty would be exclusive. <laughs> um, it, people said that. Huh. Um, I just do not think that that's that should necessarily constrain us, particularly in light of all of the changes we've seen with. Um, the extension of the right to vote in the last century, um, you know, women in 1919, African-Americans in the 1960s and, and so on. You know, we we have seen our understanding of um, of the need for federal intervention in this area and, and everything that Congress has done in the last five decades in particular uh, really does speak to a, a broad understanding of the language of Section five. So it, when you say that you advocate for kind of an unencumbered Section 5, I'm curious that she does not. <laughs> that some people, like, so So I, it's very interesting because I think, um, uh, Frenita, the, the way you just described the fact that you are trying to respect a role, this is the federalism component, right? You're trying right. to respect a genuine role for the states. Yes. And that seems to be, and Section 2 helps you do that as well, 
right? It does. Uh, yes. And informing one's understanding of Section Five. In that sense, you know, one feeling I had reading your your paper, your Alabama Law Review paper, um, that the, about the history, right, and learning about what the Carolinas and Mississippi and Louisiana did in the wake of the 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 first attempt at a federal statute in 1890 that got everyone mm-hmm. scared and yeah. was like, oh my gosh, they're going about to attack our discretion, um, which we'd been using to smuggle all this into the office of the registrar to you know, keep people from voting. I mean, you know, my reaction is in a way um, more radical than yours by quite a measure, because it seems to me what what all that history really shows is that um, that states when it comes to the right to vote. And if I think of that as something that that I enjoy as a citizen of the United States, Mm -hmm. not as a citizen of any particular state. Um, that state control over election law is just rotten to the core. There's nothing there left to save. Um, burn it down, all of it. Um, be, because it, the, it's just, n- history proves again and again and again that it simply isn't trustworthy. Well, I, I was, and we're living through another example of it right now with all this total BS about voter ID. Yeah, my mistake was thinking, like, I, I, I see Fernita's project is saying that that the Congress should be relatively unencumbered compared to the congruent proportionality test, right? Because the current test of whether Congress can, a a congressional uh, action, which is is purportedly justified under Section 5, whether that is constitutional or exceeds Congress's powers, depends on whether the court determines that what Congress has done is congruent and proportional to violation of rights in the Constitution as the court has defined it. So the court has kind of through congruence and proportionality removed the interpretive... But you could use Section 2 to make a new congruence and proportionality test. It doesn't even have to be new. It doesn't even have to be new. (laughs) (laughs) Section 2 is a a textual example of a congruent and proportional remedy. See, Fernita may be a professor, but she's still a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Your Honor, you don't have to do anything new here. (laughs) Congruence and proportionality is completely contextual. Right. Like it's completely. It's and this is this was Justice Scalia's sort of, you know, his why he didn't like it. Right. Because what does it mean? Um, It means whatever the court says it it means in any given case. Uh, And and in the context of voting rights, we have an example of a congruent and proportional remedy. We don't have to change the test necessarily. Instead, we just need to change the analysis some in order to incorporate it. Um, And and, and that's and I I think that will be attractive to courts. And, And let me also point out, like. Uh, just to sort of push back against Joe a little bit. Yeah, here we yeah. go. Here we go. I love this. I love this. I'm going to highlight this part. <laughs> the states have done some awful things when it comes to voting rights, um, but not all of them. And when we look at sort of when we look at President Trump's uh, Election Integrity Commission, I- I'm thankful for states. <laughs> um, right. Because, you know, it does show uh, what happens when the federal government falls in, in the hands of an administration that, that does not believe in, a, in broad access to the ballot. Um, that's always a possibility. And so I do think states are important. And I think federalism is, is important uh, for that reason. Now, that being said, I do think that the, the Supreme Court needs to acknowledge that the, the Reconstruction Amendments changed something, right? Like, yeah, states are important, but they do not have the same power to regulate that they had prior to the Civil War. Um, and it, and it, it's odd to me that we have to continue to relitigate this. Yeah, and we are. And it is a relitigation in the sense that you know, it, it's, it would seem to me that if the 14th Amendment makes anything clear, it makes clear that the states are subordinate to the national government in a way they never were prior to its passage. 
Uh, exactly. And and that that's the lesson. That is a lesson you could also take from Section Two and and Section Five with respect to protecting the right to vote as, in many ways, most importantly, a right of U.S. citizenship, not a right related to the, your citizenship of any particular state. And, and, and you know, like you, uh, yeah, the notion of um, a, a national administration uh, becoming quite hostile uh, to uh, the right to vote and, and the states as a bulwark against that, I mean, that fair enough. I to me, though, that's still very much a second best. I, I really think we need a voting rights amendment. I mean, I think we need to amend the Constitution to to do what Section 2 tries to do um, and, and to simply do it much, much better with the benefit of all the things we've learned between then and now and, and, and frame an amendment that is entirely about the right to vote and its fundamental nature and the fact that it can't be abridged uh, or denied and create an enforcement uh, power in Congress and even write into it uh, that, um, you know, write in the test so you don't get some goofball congruence and proportionality nonsense well, from the Supreme Court. this is what I want to ask you about. I mean, so uh, I don't – is – is any test you write going to do a better job? Like it seems to me, congruence and proportionality. Um, all that there's, you know, there's a there's a kinship here with the test in in um, reasonable relation in exactions law, right? Where it, where you're looking for a kind of a measure of of kind of fit and and kind mm-hmm. of logical connection. But but put all that aside. I mean, all of these tests are, are reasonableness tests in the end, right? And and mm-hmm. they're reasonableness reasonableness te- tests which direct courts to look either more or less closely. And that constraint about more or less closely outside the tiers of scrutiny is probably a pretty weak restraint on what courts do, I would guess. And so even if we put a right to vote in the Constitution, I think we should. I mean, it does say there's a right to vote, but it it refers to it obliquely, right? It's like, you know, can't Mm -hmm. deny the right to vote, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But like even if we do that, are we going to get away from ultimately some court is going to have to decide whether voter ID is reasonable, or whether um, moving a polling place is reasonable. Well, we can stick with voter ID because it's a concrete example, which is debated a lot right now. It, which, and it's, a, it's an example of a clearly unreasonable, I think, in light of the the harms that people identify, clearly unreasonable um, effort to, um, to to stem voting by people that, that uh, people who advocate these things don't want to vote, or at least you know they want to gain an advantage. So um, we're never going to be able to get away from judges arguing about whether this is reasonable unless you write into the constitution that that every um you know i don't know every every voting every voting regulation which can be shown to have more than a threshold impact on voter turnout is subject to strict scrutiny or something like that in which case you you know a whole other can of worms opens up fernita how do you feel about this i mean are we can we do better than I don't know that that, that, I, that that then then looking with scrutiny at some of these things. I don't know. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night because, um, you know, the Supreme Court in Crawford they they thought that voter ID was reasonable. You know, that it was a right. facial challenge, but um, you know, it just seemed to it seemed like a weird decision in light of sort of not only okay this is a hindsight problem right but part of me i'm like how could they not have seen where this would lead right but um you could you could ask that about gill against whitford right now the the you know the wisconsin redistricting case like they're being they're being told right that that big data is going to cause all these problems we talked about on the show a couple weeks ago and and 
and and maybe twenty years hence you'll look back and say, how could they not have seen? Yeah, <laughs> they're, like they're, I don't. I'm like, how could she not have seen this? But I think, you know, a part of me feels like we. I don't know if having an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution would get us much further than than we can go with what's already there. And let me explain why. And I and I welcome a dissenting opinion on this because <laughs> I hope I'm wrong about this. <laughs> But think about it. So Harper, the equal protection component of this, it's essentially a recognition that the right to vote is a fundamental right. Right. And then you have Article one, Section two. The court also sort of reads that in order to create this somewhat cohesive view of the right to vote in state and federal elections as a fundamental right. Mm -hmm. Yet here we are. And then let me add to that. Each state pretty much gives their citizens the right to vote in the state constitution. Yet here we are. So I don't that's why I'm like, what what would it do? Um, this is I don't even do we call this a political problem? Are we just electing the wrong people? Well, maybe um, I don't. I, I'm, yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, may, and so maybe maybe the way in which it would be better um, if we had an amendment, if we added a voting rights amendment to the Constitution would not be because the amendment was there. It would be because of the social movement it took to get the uh, amendment there, that the, uh, the, the social yeah. consensus that you would need to create in order for this amendment to actually be enacted into law um, would be a, a manifestation of uh, enough people's intolerance for, you know, elected officials trying to pick their voters, which is uh, mm-hmm. in a way what all this boils down to again and again, um, it, that, that like, you know, cut the nonsense. So uh, the, legal, and- right. the legal effect would be epiphenomenal in that sense, right? Like the, because the cause the the phenomenon the phenomenon that's causing the the change would be the social movement right. that led right. to the, the and then the, it lets the, you prune off people who are a little too slow to get to the to get the message people yeah. who are maybe backsliding a little bit can then be but you're right of course Christian that ultimately I mean this is something that has to it, because it's law it's people. And, right. and that is going to involve all of the all of the shortcuts we like to use because they're helpful uh, and all of the warts and imperfections that go into a human process. Of course, you're right. About but that. I mean, well, but would you favor that over for the, you know, for the social movement reasons? Would you favor that over a, a constitutional amendment which put in place? I mean, you could write the Voting Rights Act into the Constitution. You could put in a, a bail in, bail out preclearance regime into the Constitution mm-hmm. and immunize it from Supreme Court you know, machinations. I mean, that would be a way of defining what you mean by the the right to the the inviolable right to vote. Right. He, well, here's how it is inviolable. Like, you know, if states do this, we you know, this will happen. I, but of course, I mean, that brings us back to to uh, Section two of the 14th Amendment and, and Fernita's book. And it's like, well, that was there. Right. Then they isn't is it is it like there's a kind of Voting Rights Act built into the 14th Amendment already? Mm. Yeah. That's that's not being enforced. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, this right. is, and this is just the frustration. I think um, you know, I just weigh on the side of saying yes, life will be better if we had an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. But I just think, from a practical standpoint, it wouldn't make much difference. But for Joe's point, I think that that's an important point. The the effort that it would take to get this constitutional change. Um, would probably create a, gra- a grassroots movement that can change political and social norms in a way that's important for understanding what the right to vote requires, and maybe that is the goal. The the the, the gold in all of this. I, another way of looking at it, I mean, because 
like what would the social movement be built around? Like what? Because you, I don't think Joe would be very successful starting a movement to. Uh, to to put in a constitutional amendment saying, hey, if we form this movement, we'll have formed the movement and we'll put in this useless constitutional <laughs> amendment, right? <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but, but you might do, like, you might organize people around the idea that secretaries of state um, are, like, the measure of their success is the proportion of people in their states who vote. Like, you know, just focusing on that, like, you know, report card, like, this secretary of state in this in this state is a failure because the voting participation rates have been going down, down, down and are lagging you know, other uh, other states and similar elections. Like if, if you're a secretary of state in, in, in Georgia or wherever else, like your job is to run free, open and fair elections. And when people don't vote, you failed like that, that we should that the movement maybe should be saying that's your job. You know, if and if you can't do your job, then the federal government is going to come in and help. Right. You know, I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help you, uh, Mr. <laughs> secretary of state. Right. But. But I think I honestly think we're living in a liberal bubble. Voter ID laws are not unpopular. You know, so you know, think about how many people say things like, <laughs> you know, if you can't get an ID, then maybe you shouldn't be able to vote. Right. Um, completely missing the point. Well, it's because it's so right. I mean, it's it's, it's such a natural assumption that right. that like it's crazy that you can do all the, that you need an ID to fly. You need an ID for all of these things. And, and, and usually it's to prevent fraud. Like, and here's the most mm-hmm. important thing, you know, so it's usually that kind of casual right. reasoning, which of course right. is, is false because people don't show up right. and, and do that, which is why, you know, my suggestion, which I'm thinking of just now is take the heat off of that and, and put it on secretaries of state for not doing their jobs. And then if they put in voter ID and it has that effect of suppressing voter turnout, we can attack mm-hmm. them for the fact that they're not doing their job of getting out uh, uh, registered voters. I think I'm just I'm concerned about the fundamental the fundamental problem is passing laws to address a problem that doesn't exist that has a very real impact on people. <laughs> yeah, right. right? Like yeah. that to me that it doesn't matter if a person can get an ID or not, mm-hmm. right? They should not have to, and that's the point. Yeah, you know, Oregon is such an interesting, and I and I used to live there. I don't anymore, but it, but it's such an interesting example, counterexample, or an example of the sort of thing that that in Christian's model, maybe you'd get you know a very good grade, right? Because you can you can set up a system where, um, and I think they have gone to a universal registration with an opt out, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and they use um, a, a mail in ballot system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there seems it just seems crazy. You know, it seems ca- as a casual observer who hasn't studied the numbers, it seems crazy to me that what that you could mail in your vote with it. And it's it's with in-person voting. There's a danger of being mm-hmm. detected as a fraudulent vote. Right. Mail in voting, though, it seems like you could easily. Oh, no, it's quite. Fr- it's I, I know that. Quite I know, the contrary. I, I'm saying um, I, I know that. I'm giving you the chance to because tell me why got, that is. You, yeah. If you if you've got. And in a way, it takes care of the ID problem, too, without requiring people to get ID, which is like, mm-hmm. look, we've got we've got a list of the people who live here who are of voting age <laughs> and we mail to each of them a ballot. And if they've opted out of the system, of course, we can we can refrain from mailing them a ballot, but everyone else gets a ballot. And uh, if we've got and the, the way the procedure works in terms of, you know, you sign the envelope and you put that in a larger envelope. And so if they need to check signatures, which they can do on a spot basis just to mm-hmm. get, you know, check for fraud rates and whatever to the degree that they want to. Um, but you, you do that and the participation rates are very high. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it seems like, yeah, these are 
the, and, and, and look, I'm not saying there aren't ways to make the vote-by-mail process uh, more robust against any new effort at fraud. Maybe there are ways it could be improved, but in, by which case, let's improve it, right? But, but the, the notion of universal adult registration with an opt-out plus mail-in ballot, those two things alone would get your participation rates well over 80%, I think. Right. Yeah. So why I are know, we doing I that? Oregon's, I know Oregon's turnout rate was uh, substantially higher, I think, after they adopted it in 2015, automatic registration. So it definitely, I mean, there's data for this. And also, I'm not sure why we're not doing it in light of the risk of the machines being hacked, right? The, uh, the recent news report said, what, 21 states were, uh, there was attempted hacking of 21 states in 2016 during right. the election. Yeah. So, and Oregon's ballots are paper ballots. Right. You, so bubble, you bubble them in, so... So I just I don't to me, it just seems that there, there are risk involved in, in all, all of the suggestions have their, their their security flaws. But I'm not sure why this isn't um, being taken more seriously, like more states aren't turn into this as an as an option. Yeah, exactly. For I, I mean, I think, you know, um, if you look for what, what will be, you know, the, what, what's it, what is it? It's is it the. Um, um, I'm, I'm keep thinking of the Monty Python skit, like of the one more thin mint or the one, you know, the the one thing that makes everything explode. Like we've got all these problems in our voting system, right? I think mm-hmm. a state being hacked, especially by a foreign adversary, but perhaps by just some hacking group and having its votes totally like that may everything changes once that happens. And in this election, right, exactly. it almost happened. We still don't know mm-hmm. if it, you know, if there if there was I, I don't I don't think we really know yet. Uh, the extent to which that hacking got data, messed with registrations. I mean, I, I haven't read right. conclusive reporting in every state, so there may be one state at least where, where where the hacking went further than what's been reported so far. I don't know. But, you know, there clearly is that danger, as you say. Like right. that danger is out yeah. there of um, – and some people say, well, that's a good reason to have 50 different states because, you know, you, at least you don't have a kind of a uniform target. This is kind of the – um, the the anti monoculture view of, of voting, I guess, but there are only fifty states, so it's not it's not a great um, right. uh, it's not a great system, and and I don't know. It, it seems to me like we're ripe for that for disruption here. And we do have some uniformity: the National Voter Registration Act, the Motor yeah. Voter Law, right? Yeah, so it's not yeah. like there's no uniformity in this area in some aspects, right? And we have to stop this governing by crisis stuff. It sh- <laughs> a state should not have to be affirmatively hacked in order for us to get ahead of this, right? But when in the area of elections, we keep doing this. Things happen in response to the 2000 election, right? It's sad that in the 2000 election was what the fourth time in our history that the electoral vote winner was the popular vote loser. And, you know, I mean, like this is not like th- these things haven't occurred in the past, but it, it always takes a crisis. It yeah. always takes a crisis. So here's I want to emulate the president by sending a message to hackers. Okay, can I do that? Can I use our platform here to send a message to hackers? I would prefer you not. (laughs) Hackers, don't don't engage. Hackers, please. No, no, do not. No, no. No, I I am not. This is this is not the official position of oralargument.org. It is not the official position of Fernita Tolson or any of the institutions that any of us represents. Okay, Uh, but but what were you going to say, Joe? What I would have said had I said it. Okay, but you didn't. Which I didn't. But had I, I would have said. um, Here's a great thing you could do. Um, Make (laughs) the registration role in a state, make it so that it looks like everyone in that state is registered to vote. 
do something that actually increases when you're when you're messing around with someone's some state's voting system. Mm-hmm. Mess mess around with it in a way that makes voting more widely available. How about that? I again. But you do understand that all gets lumped under the broad title of voter fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah. Then, so then people will be like, "There's actual voter fraud." Yeah, yeah. And and <laughs> I in no way do I condone or endorse. Hacking into government systems Nor to do mess I, with democracy. In any way. Um, yeah. And I didn't say that, so it doesn't even matter. But you said if you do. If this I had. Is like, this is like Joe's if I did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me reaffirm that I'm just visiting. <laughs> well, it has been a great visit. I don't What? What? Um, what I usually ask this at the end because I always feel at the end like we have a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I feel I, I'm always worried that like the most important thing is the thing that we did not get to. So I know you've got this book project. I know it's not like you know, it's not, the book's not out yet, uh, but no. I'm wondering if like if there's some takeaway from the book or some important mission that you have with the book that we haven't really covered yet. Is there such a thing, or have we covered it? Um, let me just make this pitch. Section two, although it has not been enforced, really does embody a norm of broad enfranchisement that I think has gotten lost in recent years. Um, And that's why I hope my book uh, opens up a dialogue on that. Even if you disagree with me about the importance of section two, even if there's disagreement about its implications, I think one thing that I have discovered in my research that's um, really hard to contest is the fact that it embodies this norm of broad enfranchisement. Congress was trying to change something. They wanted more people to vote. And for some reason, we've gotten to a a point in our politics where it's popular for um, states to um, take away the right to vote from people who are otherwise qualified. Um, So I I think we need to get back to to the This is why my argument should even appeal to people who are originalists. Right. Originally, there's this (laughs) notion of broad enfranchisement. That's important and that we need to get back to. So I, I know I said that, but I just want to reiterate that and read my book by my book. <laughs> I think it, the, the, that part of the book on originalism could be one of the, I think, all too few entries in into the like, if I'm an originalist, I need to look at the reframing. I need to look at Bingham. I need to look at the, you know, at the at the not the founding fathers or the framers of the Constitution, but the reframers of the Constitution at the time of the Civil War. I need to look at what was going on then, what they were doing like, you know, the original public meaning in 1865 or, you know, whenever the particular... Right. When was the 14th Amendment ratified? 1868. 68. Yeah, I thought it was before 1870, but I wasn't exactly sure. Um, So, yeah, I think that could be great. And I do talk about originalism in the book because there's been a lot of uh, originalist scholarship about the 14th Amendment, but um, virtually nothing is said about Section 2. So... Um, you know, in terms of uh, theories of constitutional interpretation, I do think and, and I admit I'm honest in terms of I'm not an originalist and I don't try to pretend to be one, but I am trying to tell a story. So the book does tell a story about the adoption of Section 2 that has uh, very little to do about how I think it should be interpreted going forward. So I did want to be um, somewhat constrained in my description of section two, right? So the book should appeal to everybody because there is sort of this narrative of section two, even if you disagree with my normative conclusions, that would still appeal to you um, if you're a person who cares about the history. And and like, this is 
was it Souter and Breyer and other, um, I, I don't know as much about the others, but like uh, on the quote unquote liberal side of the court, they always say they're interested in history. The question is like what, in, in what sense is the history authoritative or, informa- or informative? And that's where the originalism, quote unquote, living constitutionalism divide is. And, exactly. and, and this story, like it's a fascinating story and it's a tragic story. I mean, if, you know, there was so much promise, again, to go back to right. how, how we started, you know, if think of how much time we've wasted, how many lives have been you know lost, how many uh, great careers never happened. And we were on that trajectory, you know, with, again, with like significant black representation in uh, southern state legislatures. I mean, if that integration to continue, if the Civil Rights Act had not been struck down, uh, if, you know, if Wilson had lost, if the KKK hadn't become right. a, a dominant kind of terrorist organization, I mean, it's so much waste. And and I don't think that story of this kind of American tragedy has been told and you know, it has been, but it hasn't, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm just, fr- can you tell I'm frustrated? I don't know. <laughs> so I, I think one of the great things about this work, right, is that you're showing, hey, this is, you know, it's another element of of the promise that was lost, mm-hmm. right? Yes. A way to flip around what you had said earlier, Christian, was that, and maybe it's a more dystopic version of it, would be, you know, you asked me, like, how much difference would it make if this text were a voting rights amendment were added to the Constitution? Right. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And another way to say it might be, you know, a country that could truly live up to and fully embody the values of the Reconstruction Amendments wouldn't need the Reconstruction Amendments. Exactly. You would that's, just that's be, a wonderful way to put it. You'd be doing the right thing because it would be the ethos of that people to do the right thing. Um, so we, you know, in a way, we're writing these constitutional values to kind of hector ourselves into doing the right thing. Right. So the fact that they're there suggests that we know, in a sense, we can't actually achieve them um, yet. Yeah, and especially but we're trying. Yeah, right, uh, it's a work in progress. We're a work in progress, and. Um, so we're falling short, but we are trying. And and it's it's not coincidental that the I think the most important bits of constitutional text, these Civil War amendments, in my view, were were not you know were were not passed as a result of kind of universal you know or, or nationwide acclaim. It was right. at the barrel of a gun, right? I mean, the, the Southern states were forced as a condition of readmission, I think, to ratify yes. these amendments. And otherwise, we would not have had them. And so this dynamic, you like, we wouldn't need them if we had the right ethos, right? Well, you know, this was, a, this was a, an act of, uh, of, an act of, of forcing submission. Well, right? of, of which victors do. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and so you need law in that wow. context. I think. These are the deepest, yeah. like, undercurrents of American law in a way that we're talking about. Uh. Right. And perhaps a new constitutional amendment will reaffirm our commitment to the right to vote. Um, and, maybe, and maybe we need that. <laughs> now, Joe, Joe has his thumb up. He just stuck his thumb up. <laughs> yes, we do need so it. So here's what, here's, what, here's what else we need. We need Frenita to come back. Well, anytime, yeah. really. I, I think, you know, I've said this. I, I feel this about all of our guests. Right. I definitely feel about it, Frenita. Every you time. should just come back every week. Just every <laughs> week. <laughs> but, but, but at the very least, you should come back when this book is done. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This has been a blast. It's I got been... over my nerves. <laughs> Great yeah. to talk to you. I got over my nerves, too. Somewhere in there. It didn't always go well, but somewhere in there I got over my nerves because this was a super fun conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great Thanksgiving, guys.